This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. The Champions League, Graham Potter's good start continues for Chelsea, comfortable in the San Siro after Fakayo Tomori's red card. But how can you be sent off if the attacker stays on his feet when what we really want is attackers to stay on their feet? In a tough night for ex-pros who don't know the laws, a lot of laws in action in Copenhagen as a Haalandless Man City are held. Another Celtic by numbers Champions League game, create chances but fail to score while get those buckets ready for Timo Werner. Our Shakhtar, the story of the competition, displaced by war, no football for months and holding Real Madrid in with a great chance of getting through. That Super League can't come quickly enough for Juve, beaten by Maccabi Haifa. While Kylian Mbappe isn't happy playing up front with Neymar and Messi, he wants a big target man. Announce Grant Holt. Announce Andy Booth. We'll try and remember anything that happened in Villa 1, Forest 1 on Monday. There's joy for Ireland and heartbreak for Wales in the Women's World Cup qualifiers. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nicky Bandini, welcome. Morning. Hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello. And hello, Lars Sivetson. Good morning, Max. Uh, let's start the San Siro then. Um, another excellent win for Graham Potter, uh, back in his Champions League turtleneck, who has started brilliantly for Chelsea. Four wins and a draw in his first five games, Lars. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's also the Potter maker. I mean, we'll get to the football. This is ostensibly a football podcast, but you have to take <laughs> a moment to appreciate the, uh, the Graham Potter makeover, I think. And I wonder about the mechanics of this. Did he just decide, right, I'm managing Chelsea now. We have to glam up a little bit. Or or do they have like a stylist who, when you sign a contract, hey, in comes the Chelsea stylist to like make you even even sexier? I don't know. But no, he's a very handsome man. And and uh, and uh, I guess I'd be, I'm kind of more interested in hearing Nicky's perspective on this than, than my own because it's been two games now with Milan last season's Serie A winners who've not really been able to lay a glove on Chelsea. And at Stamford Bridge, it was just not a great performance. And here they get Tomori sent off after less than 20 minutes. And the game kind of is shaped by that. And and I think that'll be very frustrating for Milan. But for Potters, obviously, it's fantastic because they weren't in a great place uh, in, in the group uh, as things stood. And these two wins against uh, Milan has just really turned that on its head. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what to say about this game. I was really looking forward to this game because I felt like Milan definitely didn't show their best at Sanford Bridge. And, and, you know, you did have Teo Hernandez back for this game, which makes a big difference. They are still missing a bunch of starters, but Teo Hernandez, I talked about it with with Max last week, um, Teo Hernandez makes a big difference in that side because the best player in that team is Rafael Leao. There's no question about it. Rafael Leao is, is your superstar. And when you've got Hernandez and Leao overlapping, that's where you create a level of danger that just wasn't there at Stamford Bridge. You've got that ability to overload one side with real quality to create some danger. And look, for 17 minutes, we had an interesting, I thought, set up to a football game where like, there were a couple of times, there were no chances in those 17 minutes, but where Milan showed that pace going forward, they showed that verticality. They also left some space at the back and I thought, oh, this will be interesting. Maybe they'll still lose, but we'll get uh, a new football game. We'll see how it plays out. And then the red card happens and I'm I'm with everyone else, I think, in this podcast. I think it is a red card. I think it's, it's, it's a sending off. But from the point of view of the spectacle, from the point of the view of can Milan play a competitive game against Chelsea, it, it ended it. Like that was the end of the game as, as what it could have been. I don't like being boring about this, but it is a sort of worthwhile point to make sometimes. Remind yourself that when Chelsea wanted to switch left backs halfway through the game, they, they brought on a, a, a replacement who cost more than what, more than anyone that Milan had bought? Like that's, you know, more than Charles de Ketelaar, who was the big star signing of the summer. There is a differential between these two teams. There is a differential between the Premier League and everyone else in Europe when it comes to, to financial ability. Milan need things to be just so to compete in this game. And unfortunately, tomorrow's red card did undermine that really critically. It's his own fault. And I think I also just wanted to say on that, like I, while I completely think it is a red card, 
I think there's also an extra layer to it with Milan, which is there was a sense of injustice accompanying it, rightly or wrongly. And part of that goes back to they feel like in the last couple of seasons in Europe, they've had decisions go against them that have critically undermined them. It happened against Atletico Madrid with a red card for, for Kessier that I thought was, was was tough myself. It happened when they went to Old Trafford and felt they should have had a penalty for Val and Kessier. They feel like they're always penalised in these games. And I think that part of the story also then plays into what happens on the pitch because you've got a group who are already feeling like, oh, the odds are just being stacked against us every time we come out here. They need to play Arsenal because there's an agenda against Arsenal and an agenda against AC Milan. Dave says, Tomori's red. Why don't pundits and fans understand it doesn't have to be a bad foul to be a red card? The referee applied the rules, even if it feels harsh. Savage saying, credit to Mount for staying on his feet while also <laughs> saying it shouldn't be a red. I'm confused, Barry. I think we could devote this entire podcast to assorted BT sport pundits having no idea of what the laws of football actually are while simultaneously calling for ex-players such as themselves <laughs> to be given a role to help implement these laws that none of them understand more sensibly. It's, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of funny, but it is also dangerous because... They they air their views and they put their views on Twitter. Their views are ill-informed and wrong. Uh, or they air their views in commentary. Their views are ill-informed, they're wrong. But people listen to them, take what they're saying as gospel, and this helps spread this campaign of abuse that undermines referees who are doing their jobs correctly. There are several examples of this in the Copenhagen Man City game, which we'll get to, I'm sure, uh, other examples in, in other games. We had the example at the weekend where Dale Johnson, uh, in his excellent weekly VAR column, uh, which is a clearly a labour of love, but God, he must have the patience <laughs> of a saint. He, he pointed out that there was a possibility Bukayo Saka might have been a few inches offside in the build-up to Arsenal's first goal as he received a 60-yard crossfield pass um, from Ben White. Inch-perfect pass. There mi- he might have been offside, but the, the cameras weren't able to capture it for definite to, to draw the lines. And this article has been regurgitated out of context and inaccurately by a load of media organisations who are trying to make out there's some anti-Liverpool conspiracy going on by VAR and by referees. Again, this is dangerous. A few weeks ago, we saw a grassroots ref get the absolute shit kicked out of him by a player who I think has since been arrested and hopefully charged. None of this is helping. It's, it's dangerous. We have these ex-pros in studios offering opinions and in studios on radio stations on podcasts, I, I think we probably don't get everything right. I wouldn't claim to be able to recite the football law book chapter and verse. But if I'm not sure about something, I go and look it up. And mm. then I, you know, it's not hard. It doesn't take long. And actually, you can say, even in a live broadcast, you're allowed to say, I don't know. And it's not a crime, right? You can say, do you know what? I'm not sure about that. Yes, and also, you can be annoyed with the law, right? You can. I, I find it that Tamori is really unfortunate in that situation. And there is a sort of ridiculousness in the law that had he actually gone through Mason Mount and like taken him out by his ankles and then taken the ball, he could say, oh, I was going for the ball. But because he pulls him, the referee has to send him off. So like you can complain about the law itself. And there are lots of problems. Like we'll get to those Man City handballs. Like they're both in my mind, ridiculous, right? The, the, the disallow goal and the penalty. But you can be annoyed with the law, but you still need to, you need to know what the law is, Nikki. I think there's so many things that play into it. Like, and I, and I you know, I, I do think one of them I've already said, which is that I actually think that part of the, like, the feeling that ends up coming out is like an in-the-moment frustration because a lot of people are looking forward to this game and you know as soon as that decision happens, if, especially if Jorginho scores the penalty, which he does, you, you've take the spectacles probably gone. Like it's very unlikely that that's going to end up being this great game that you hoped it was going to be. But I think there's also, it's worth saying this because I, we all agree in this, in this room. And like, I agree that it was a red card. I think there's no disagreement here that even someone, um, 
who has been a professional referee, Christina Uncle, was on CBS saying that she thought it was more ambiguous. So there, there is some scope within this for people who actually have done that job to to, to say that. And so I think, like, I I, I just really understand. Um, I don't know. I I really sort of understand where the the sort of the, the feeling of of oh this is wrong comes from. When you just said it, Max, the ridiculous part of like if he just goes through, then it's different. But yeah, I, I think. Um, I don't know. It's a game of emotion, isn't it? We all get emotional sometimes, and I think that plays into a lot of the reaction sometimes. The referee was very card happy. I think that's also part of the picture, right? Like I think I saw it was like the most yellow cards handed out in the first half of a Champions League game in however long. Like it was, he, he was very, very officious, and I think that also plays into perception of it. When you've got someone who's already dishing out the cards left, right, and center, and then they make a big decision, it, it immediately like makes people think, well, this person's just being like that. Also in this group, Dinamo Zagreb drew one all with. RB Salzburg. So what it means is Chelsea are now top of the group after those two wins and the draw since Potter's been in charge. Salzburg are second on six points. Milan and Zagreb have four. So Lars, it's, it's one of a number of groups that are still alive, which is quite good for the Champions League, isn't it? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm quite enjoying the group stage so far. Uh, but then I often do. I mean, maybe I'm just a bit simple, but I, I never get this sort of, the group stage is so bad. Like this often better football being played than in the knockouts because knockouts get a little bit nervy and everyone's a little stressed out and uh and, and we have had a few upsets from from teams we don't really expect so yeah it's, it's been good uh let's go to man city's group then they drew nil nil in copenhagen barry you did the minute by minute did you enjoy it yeah it was all right game the first half was good uh no goals but packed full of incident and um, the ref spent a sizable amount of his time <laughs> trotting to the side of the pitch <laughs> to look at things on his pitch side monitor and change his mind. And the second half was a bit of a non-event, to be honest. Yeah, again, controversies. Rodri scored an absolute screamer for City after being teed up by Julian Alvarez, who was in for Erling Haaland, who was rested for the 90 minutes. But his goal was disallowed because of a very innocuous handball by Riyad Mahrez in the build-up. Again, by the letter of the law, it's a handball. But by the letter, it shouldn't be the letter of the law. Because, <laughs> you know, the ball dropped out of the sky. It sort of hit the back of his hand. He knew nothing about it. It wasn't intentional in any way. And it didn't really affect the play. But computer says that's handball. So... That's what it is. And then, um, so Rodri had this wonder strike chalked off, which seemed very unfair, because I think it was his first Champions League goal on his 50th appearance in Europe. Then City got a penalty for a Nikolai Boylison handball as he defended a corner. I think that was probably fair enough. The ball did hit his, his arms, but... Here's why I say, I don't know. I'm I'm proud to say, yeah. I don't know exactly what the law is. <laughs> yes. It seems completely arsed to me. But well, anyway. he was kind of doing that classic page three girls pose as he attempted to uh, <laughs> to um, defend a corner and, and Emmanuel Kanji tried to head the ball. And it, yeah, look, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Anyway, the fact of the matter is Camille Grabera saved brilliantly um, from Mares. Uh he he was good again last night. Um the, the Copenhagen goalkeeper. Like he was brilliant in the game. They lost five nil <laughs> despite conceding five goals. And then um Sergio Gomez got sent off for, for pulling back Hacken Harrelson um on the edge of the the City penalty area. The ref didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Var got got him to go to the touchline and, and he gave a red card and and it was a totally justified red card. And the second half, I would say the only highlight was that uh, Copenhagen's Hacken uh, Harrelson, who's a teenage Icelandic player, was replaced by another teenage Icelandic player, Isaac Johannesson, who's the son of Joey Goodjohnson, who fans of Wolves, Villa, uh, Leicester and Burnley will remember. The Copenhagen keeper, Lars, is quite interesting, Interesting, isn't he? Because he's come in for Matty Ryan and basically ha has completely undone ev all the work that has been done by the goalkeepers' union in the history of football in his statements about him deserving the number one jersey. Yeah, so he did, he did an interview with a Danish outlet uh, in which he says, well, he did, he did initially said, I don't comment on my teammates' performances. 
but he also said that uh, I don't see any competition from the goalkeeper position. I have every reason to believe I am the first goalkeeper, which is given that he'd been out of the team for a bit and Matty Ryan had been in is a strange one. But he also said for for some reason we've got a new head coach and for some reason we've conceded close to the same number of, of goals as we did last season. Uh, that's how it is in football. So he basically suggested, well, you know, they put someone else in goal and we're still conceding loads of goals. So, you know, you do the maths. It was a, it was a very strange sort of... I, I think this is always weird because you would imagine, like, the goalkeepers, they they have to work together a lot, presumably. I mean, they spend a lot of time hanging around together in the training ground. And, and you always hear people talk about how great it is to have a backup goalkeeper who's really positive and, like, G is on the first choice and stuff. So having actual, like, semi-public aggro between your goalkeeper must be really awkward. It's, it's really, really weird, the whole dynamic of the situation. But to be fair to him, he played really well. Uh, and he played really well when they lost 5-0 as well. So I suppose he's backed up his words a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess that always happens with goal. I mean, you're right. It's like, it's sort of this unsaid thing with goalkeepers. And then you sort of wonder where the third keeper sits in all of this. Like what's, apart from like doing crosses in the pre-game warm-up, like it's a very odd position sort of within the game. Isn't I, it? I like, would love to be the third choice goalkeeper. <laughs> I was born to be the third what? choice. I would be quite happy to never, ever play. Trouser a big wage every week. And... Just you know, if if the team wins, I still get a medal. I, I would love it. I would absolutely love it. This puts me in mind of of the former. I actually I don't think he's still there. Tommaso Berni Inter, who was backup goalkeeper for the best part of a decade, got sent off several times without Amazing. ever getting on the pitch. So just got sent off from the bench <laughs> in like a decade without playing twice. I think. No, he yeah, he kept being really angry on the sidelines. And I also seem to remember he had like an Instagram account where him and his sort of very glamorous sort of footballer's wife would travel the world and stuff. So he was definitely living the life. <laughs> Amazing. And 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 contributing aggro from the sideline, but just never ever playing any football, which surely has to be the dream. I mean, that that'd be the ultimate thing. I think there's two kinds of third choice goals. There's a young, ambitious, hungry kid third choice goalkeeper. And then there's the, you know, Scott, had a decent yeah. career. Scott yeah, Carson, exactly, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Scott Carson, Rob Green, by the end. Rob. You have to be yeah. a certain age yeah. to, to accept your lot. You're quite happy to not, not, never, ever play. And, you know, but it's a, enjoy the lifestyle. Interesting that City didn't score and Haaland didn't play. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean a, a huge amount, does it? But perhaps it means that Pep will look at that and not totally overthink it in the quarterfinal. Um, uh, also in this group, Dortmund drew with Sevilla and, you know, Jude Bellingham now scored in all four of Dortmund's Champions League games and, and Lars, a classic midfielder's goal. Yeah, I love this. Uh, 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 and he, it was one of those where him, he carried the ball forward from midfield like a proper box-to-box midfielder should, and then laid it out wide and then continued his run into the box and the cross came in and he finished. It's his proper sort of straight out of the training ground, straight out of the instruction manual for a, for a box-to-box midfielder. And and he's looking... He's, he's 19 years old. Like, it's mad. It's, uh, there's a lot of things to appreciate about Jude Bellingham. His physique, his technique, his sort of general aggression. But, but, but the thing that I just completely boggles the mind is how mature he is on the, on the pitch. I mean, obviously, he's played quite a lot of football now. But he just kind of arrived fully formed, even though he was very, very young. He just, from the first moment he played regularly for Dortmund, he looked like like a 28-year-old midfielder who'd won several Champions Leagues before. And so he just, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And uh, it's, it's a little bit frustrating, I would assume, for him and Dortmund that they're not, you know, they're not quite as good as you'd hope them to be, especially in a season where we're buying our, our fumbling a little bit. Uh, but they're in a decent position to finish second in this group. Uh, getting out of the group stage would be important from them financially. I mean, we sometimes forget there's quite a lot of extra cash to be made from going through the group stage, which in the sort of eternal struggle to, to keep up with Bayern Munich is uh, important for the club. But of course, Bellingham probably leaving next summer, uh, no matter what they do. So all that means Man City are through. Dortmund need one more point from their last two games to progress. So uh, not... No longer a fascinating Champions League group. And that'll do for part one. Part two will begin at Celtic Park. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Paul Watson tweets that San Marino are going to the Caribbean to play St. Lucia twice on the 17th and 20th of November. What a trip for the players. A huge chance to get their first win since 2004. And as a result, we've announced Football Weekly Live on the 17th of November, a St. Lucia San Marino special live from Earth in Hackney and live streamed around the world. You can be at the game in St. Lucia and watch us if they're on at the same time, which is highly unlikely. Me, Baz, Lars and Ellis James uh, go to theguardian.com slash Guardian Live. The event will be live streamed and then recorded a link sent and the video will be emailed to all ticket holders um, the following day and you can watch it for a week. So if you can't watch it live, you can still catch up. And my apologies in advance for the relentless tweeting about that event. Uh, let's go to Celtic Park. Celtic nil, RB Leipzig 2. Uh, Celtic can't qualify for the knockouts, one point in four games. And, and as in all their games, Barry, they sort of have a period where they're really good, have loads of chances, can't score and then lose because they're knackered by about 60 minutes. Yeah, um, I think whether they qualify for the Europa League or not, I think Celtic will be very disappointed with this campaign. I wasn't expecting a huge amount from them. I wasn't expecting them to qualify, but I, I don't think they've given a very good account of themselves. And it's their inability to score, which is reaching mind-boggling. Um, <laughs> uh, so what status now? They just miss so many chances in each of the games they've played, and it's, yeah, it's. I mean, there's not a huge amount Ange Postecoglou can do about that. I think, and these strikers and, and midfielders who are missing these chances are able to apparently score at will in the domestic front, admittedly against inferior opposition. But you know, they, these are chances they should be scoring, and they're not. I, I see one of our Talksport colleagues said last night that they should be ashamed of themselves, which I think is a little harsh, but uh, to say the least. But yeah, I, I think they'll, when they're reflecting on this campaign, they'll think we could have done a lot better. I know there's this massive disparity in budget between them and the other sides, but when you look at a team, you know, Shakhtar, who are basically putting out a youth team, FC Copenhagen team that drew with City last night. They, um, I think they had seven or eight players on the pitch at one stage who were aged 20 or under. You know, Celtic should be doing better than this. But you're right, it's all about scoring goals. Like from, from the Australian point of view, which is very, how is Ange Postacoglu doing? And desperate for him to be a success. The sort of general feeling is one of like progress for Celtic in the sense that he is... They are playing expansive football. They're really trying to play football in like a really beautiful way. And if he had some better centre forwards, <laughs> they, they they could well be through. Well, you know, you could argue at least they are creating chances to yeah. miss. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw they have like it's, it's like nearly six expected goals through this group stage, and they scored one. Like that that suggests that the, the football is being played well, right? Like if that's what your numbers are, the football is being played well. So that is. Of course, like it's the most sort of important thing in football in the end is being able to score those goals. But I feel like that's a credit to the manager if you're creating those chances and then you've got to, you know, maybe sometimes put some responsibility on the players if they're not converting them. So I, I want to bring in a, a point that your very excellent Australian colleague Craig Foster made yesterday, which is that if you look at the way Celtic play, 
uh, under Andrzej Postecoglou, they play a very sort of high pressing. It's, it's like it's like it's like a mini Man City up there in in Scotland. You know, when when they lose the ball, they immediately swarm the opponents uh, and they win the ball back very fast. Now it's the very aggressive pressing type of thing. And when they do that domestically in Scotland, most of the time they win the ball back pretty fast, and then you have the ball again. Whereas when you do it against RB Leipzig against Real Madrid. Most of the time, they'll just play through you and you have to run all the way back, which means that instead of spending the entire game making these little sprints to win the ball back, you end up spending the entire game running up and down the entirety of the field, which is maybe why they have in certain games dropped at their energy levels in the last sort of half hour, 20 minutes, because the way they're trying to play and not fully being able to implement it as well as they do in Scotland, it, it leaves you having to run an awful lot. Goal and an assist for Timo Werner. Let the bucket loads. Let the floodgates open. Such a such a fun, enigmatic, frustrating yet important player, Lars. Yeah, he's important and useful in the sense that he does all the sort of. Uh, I mean, he he he's very fast, and having fast strikers on the field always gives you something tactically because it's something the opponents have to worry about constantly. He works really hard off the ball, which is good, like defensively. But the thing that's so frustrating is, yeah, he gets into a lot of good positions. We've seen him miss a lot of chances. But then the goal yesterday was really good. Like, that was a really clever finish. Uh, and you wouldn't, like, uh, look at that and think, well, hey, that's a player who would be extremely sort of unreliable in front of goal. It was a very clever little uh, header. And and again, if you make a big Timo Werner compilation of all of his goals, there's a lot of cracking finishes there. But uh, he's just he's he is just a little bit inconsistent, and I guess uh, that's why it went the way it did eventually at uh, at Chelsea. But I I think you you, t- you take some stick for this, Max. But I think you're right. I think with him. There is the potential, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him just go crazy and have like a 40-goal season at some point, because he keeps getting into all these good positions. He Mm. just needs to be a little bit more clinical. I can't wait for that season. (laughs) Uh, Also in this group, Shakhtar won, Real Madrid won. It is incredible what Shakhtar are doing when you consider the current situation. I think it was you who told me, Lars, you know, that the players had to ring their families yesterday to fight after that sort of Russian bombardment around Ukraine to sort of check that they're okay. You know, Adam Crafton from The Athletic tweeting, their team tonight, 10 Ukrainians in the starting 11, eight starters from the youth system, seven starters, 23 or younger, one starter over 26. Not sure it's fully appreciated just how much they are punching to even be competing against Real Madrid, never mind winning 1-0. And Jim says, other than the obvious, is there a bigger villain in Europe tonight than Antonio Rudiger, Barry? Yeah. um, Obviously, he scored the... The equaliser for Madrid in the fifth and final minute of added time. I don't think that in any way takes away from Shakhtar's performance, and I don't think their results even matter. But just the very fact that they're there and they're able to compete is remarkable. And actually, Lars, they had a they had a great chance to make it two 0 didn't they? Yeah, with uh, with Lasina Sraore, uh, who's one of the very few foreign players who've who've, st- who've stuck around. Uh, and uh, and yeah, that that would have been quite something. Uh, I want to flag up Mudrik, who again was excellent. He's going to end up being bought by someone very big uh, next summer. And I also just want to note on this game, Rudiger's winning goal. I mean, tremendous bravery. He's really sticking his head in there and getting properly knocked out for his troubles. And also, I, I was watching that thinking of our, our dear colleague, John Bruin, and his very passionate uh, Get It Launched mm. campaign, because Real Madrid certainly got it launched towards the end. They stuck their biggest and meanest centre half up front and they got it launched and and rewards were had. (laughs) Dale says, isn't it becoming impossible to argue with Juve's stance that they belong in a European Super League given the total dominance (laughs) they're showing both domestically (laughs) and in Europe? Uh, They were beaten 2-0 away at Maccabi Haifa. Um, I mean, this this Nicky feels... This is disastrous. Skull says, what's Italian for you're getting <laughs> sacked in the morning? What is the Italian for you're getting sacked in the morning? Sarai esonerato nella mattina is how you would say you're getting sacked in the uh, And is, is Max Allegri da-da-da-da-da-da-da Martina? <laughs> no, he won't uh, get sacked in the morning because um, Agnelli immediately came out and said, uh, we'll make these decisions at the time we always make these decisions, which is at the end of the season. That's how we do business. I'm less confident that that will actually be the case than I was maybe even a a week ago. I think, as I tweeted, like every time you lower the bar for Juventus, every time you think, okay, so the bar of expectation has come down a little bit, they, they limbo underneath it because you've got 
I'm thinking, okay, can they at least win these two games against Maccabi Haifa? And they're still not going to get through the group stage. That was fairly confident in my mind after the loss of Benfica, they weren't going to get through the group stage. But you think they'll at least at least win these two games. And it's not even that they didn't win these two games. They didn't remotely deserve to win against Maccabi. And, and I'm sort of in this position of like, well, full credit to Maccabi and, and they deserve to be celebrated, right? Because this is a Champions League win for them. It's a huge moment. But at the same time, the reason this is a story about Juventus rather than about them is because that exact same performance from Maccabi would not have beaten the other two teams in this group. Would would simply would not have beaten the other two teams that are they're in this group, and that's the, the level that Juventus should be at. And I think what sort of most, if I was in charge of Juventus, would be ringing the alarm bells for me. The thing that would be making me think, no, we really can't hold this to the end of the season is it just doesn't look like the players are playing for Allegri anymore. It really doesn't. And for me, there was the, the, the big moment at the weekend when they lost to Milan, when Vlahovic gives the ball away cheaply and that's a mistake that can happen. I don't think that's about whether you're playing for him. But then when Brian Diaz runs through, Bonucci is, is squared up to him and you think this is a classic moment for a defender as smart and been around as long as Bonucci just to foul him, right? Just get in his way, take the yellow card and they don't score a goal. And he doesn't even really challenge him. And I think ever since that moment, it's put a whole different colour on on this situation for me because Bonucci is someone who has a long history with Allegri, which wasn't always particularly friendly. Um, There was, of course, the famous incident where he got dropped for for a Champions League quarterfinal return game because they'd fallen out on the training ground. And it was a big moment back in Allegri's first tenure of Allegri asserting his power. Bonucci ends up getting sold to Milan the next season. It's a no, I'm in charge here, not you moment. And now we have this second era of Allegri that's not going well. And Allegri has lost all of these leaders who he used to cling on to. He's lost his Buffon, he's lost his Chiellini. He's lost Mandzukic as well, who I think you sort of forget as one of those figures in the first Juventus tenure that really embodied the fight in this team. Even Carlos Tevez, when he was there, was a, was, a, was someone who fought and, and put the boot in when he needed to. And now a lot of those players are gone. And the players you're looking to for leadership, are they... Are they with Allegri? Because it doesn't look like it. And the players who've been brought in who are supposed to be veterans and provide some sort of veteran experience, like Di Maria. Well, after the last Champions League game, he was sort of caught on camera talking to to, to Milik and it looked like he was saying, why was that substitution made? Criticising the manager. It feels like there's not a sort of collaborative mindset here. It feels like they're not making tackles. That's what Nedved was talking about a week ago, saying that they're just not making tackles anymore. It's not the manager's fault. Well, maybe it is the manager's fault if he can't motivate his players to to make that bit of effort for him. And to me, I don't understand how you keep a hold of a manager in that situation. I do think there's zero chance of something happening before the World Cup. I think if it keeps going this badly, as much as Daniele wants to say we'll make our decisions at the end of the season, there would come a point where if the Champions League next season is at risk, you might have to think differently. But for now, at least, the line out of Juventus is, no, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to wait until the end of the season. I watched this game, and I've watched a few Juventus games this uh, season for my sins. And I am increasingly... Look, we've been pretty mean about Andrea Agnelli and and his sort of being more interested in changing football than running his own team, uh, of thinking they're so special they shouldn't have to play teams like this and then they lose to them. But I also think one of his big lines is like he's really panicking because like young people are playing Fortnite instead of watching football. And I mean, if, if, if he watches Juventus all the time, I can see why you would have that concern <laughs> because even I would prefer going on Twitch and watching a spotty youth uh, play Fortnite than spend more time watching this football team. They are garbage. No, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't go on. I mean, they, they do. They play in this miserable low block. It never changes. There's no generosity to their football. There's no expansiveness. It's it's a really, like, unappealing, un, unwatchable kind of football. And when you're losing to teams you shouldn't lose to, like Maccabi or even like Monza and Serie A, and you're also not making it fun, what's, what's to cling on to for players or fans? John says, can we have a collective pod apology for saying Maccabi will get zero points in the group? This season, I don't recall. None of us can recall saying anything about Maccabi, so we apologise for not saying anything about them. It is their first Champions League win since they beat Manchester United in 2002, um, uh, according to something I read yesterday. So I hope that is correct, uh, in which case, 20 years. Um, congratulations to them. PSG won, Benfica won. Joe says, if Mbappe is pissed off at PSG, but he's effectively in charge of PSG, does that mean he's pissed off with himself? Does he need crunch contract talks alone 
in a room. The Spanish paper Marca reporting that Mbappe wants to leave in January, which, Barry, is hilarious. Is it? Yes. I mean, he's clearly not as in charge of PSG as he thought he was, and that's, I think, why he wants to leave. You know, there was lots of talk yesterday about certain demands of his not being met, but I, I couldn't see what these demands were. But apparently it's he, he the team is not lining up in a formation that pleases him. Um, they haven't signed the centre-back he wanted. <laughs> uh, Neymar is still there. He wanted him gone. And I suspect his main problem is that he's not playing particularly well and Lionel Messi and Neymar are both playing some of the best football of their lives coming into a World Cup. So um, I, I'll be honest, I don't care what happens at PSG. I think they're a loathsome club. And, you know, if there's internal disruption, great. But I, I don't care. I, I echo the sentiments of Mr. Glenn Denning, especially about his feelings regarding PSG, which I share. But it's also something about, like... I know we don't do sound effects on this podcast or have, like, a soundboard of anything, but could we pipe in just, like, an audio clip of a crying baby in the back of this whole segment? Because this is absolutely unbelievable, this. Uh, can I just say, Lars, as someone with that... Who, I, I'm away for three days. I don't need <laughs> the audio of a crying baby, you know. But you could record some at home and we could use them for the Mbappe segments in the future. I, I do know... I can vouch for the fact that the current Mrs. Russian does occasionally record the sound of a crying baby and send it to her husband via whatsapp just to make him feel bad about abandoning her to be in sole charge of said upset child that's tremendous and again we could use it for the pod i mean there's great sort of personal life professional life synergy happening here but no but really What's interesting here, aside from just making fun of him for being a massive crybaby, which he clearly is, uh, I, I read our mutual acquaintance, Mr. Miguel Delaney's report on this uh, in in a different newspaper, and he he the some of the the, the vision that's being outlined. This is kind of fascinates me. The uh, Mbappe's vision uh, of the future uh, is kind of he he may, he he thinks there's like having three superstars unbalances the team. It should be him plus one, not him plus two of them. Uh, they should be cashing in more on the fact that they're in Paris, you know, one of the biggest talent hotbeds in the world, and they should be signing young French talents that are very athletic so that they can play a modern, high-pressing game. Like, th- this is all good. Like, I completely agree with him if this is his stance. Like, actually, if if, if since, he, he, since he is an aspiring uh, directeur sportif, uh, if he was doing the, the, the sporting director course like our old friend Marcus Bean, and he wrote this in a paper, like, this is what Paris should be doing, like, top marks, Kylian, very good. Uh, this this is, I, I completely agree with all this. But here's the thing. He signed a massive contract to be a footballer at this team a couple of months ago. They're currently top of the league. They're undefeated. As Barry has said, Messi's playing the best football he's done since since leaving Barcelona. Neymar's playing some of his best football for years. Things are going really well. And at that moment, you decide to kick off and have a massive strop because you're not playing with sexy Olivia Giroud, which everyone wants to do that. But, like, honestly, this is embarrassing. Like, this is not how someone behaves. And also anyone who's told him that's all right Kylian you can kick off because someone will sign you in January he's being very badly advised there's nowhere for him to go he's contracted to a club for whom money has no value like money doesn't matter to PSG there's no transfer fee that can possibly entice them to sell Kylian Mbappe if they don't want to right so they can just say, well, you're under contract, mate, so we want 300 million for you. And like the only club in Europe that could ever probably do that would be Man City. And they have a striker who is, you know, whether he's better or not is a discussion it could have, but he's certainly more low maintenance than this guy. So, so where is he going to go? He can't go anywhere. He's stuck there. And he's behaving like a massive baby. And it's just nonsense. I mean, honestly, I think PSG should stick him on the bench. They should stick him on the bench until after the World Cup and say, OK, you don't want to play for PSG and Mbappe? Great. On the bench with you. and We'll win most of our games anyway. I don't want to kick back against anything that's been said other than, like, there was a suggestion that he's not playing that well. I mean, he's got a goal a game in Ligue 1 and a goal a game in the Champions League. If that's the bar of not playing very well, I mean, it's not bad, is it? 
because the dreaded Neymar keeps providing him with fantastic assists, which is the other thing here. Like, but both both Messi and Neymar, who he is so furious at having to play with because they're not tall and sexy like Giroud, keep giving him great assists so that he can score goals. <laughs> and he's like, Wah! why are you not tall? Like, oh my God, this guy. What an utter embarrassment. If only there was a, an internet meme or gif commonly used by fans of clubs owned by the likes of the owners of PSG or Newcastle or City, featuring um, Kylian Mbappe <laughs> running to a corner flag. and <laughs> I think someone should get to work on that. I um, I do like the idea of, of him being brought off the bench in the 92nd minute of every game. <laughs> you know, just there you go. Have your one minute. Anyway, good luck to him, whatever he wants to do. So, so it very much looks like PSG and Benfica are through. They've both got eight points from four games. Juve and Maccabi Haifa uh, both on three. And that'll do for part two. Part three will begin at the city ground. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Nottingham Forest one, Aston Villa one. Producer Joel writes in red. We don't need to do very long on this game at all. Um, Barry, could you do something short on this game? I can do something very short. I didn't watch it. And by all accounts, I dodged a hail of bullets (laughs) because it seems to have been one of the worst Premier League spectacles of all time. It was atrocious. No, only thing, it was so bad that so, uh, our, again, second mention today, our, our good friend John Bruin uh, pointed out, because Ashley Young scored a good goal. That was one of the things that happened in this game. And John Bruin pointed out that Ashley Young made his England debut versus Austria in, in 2007. His teammates included David Beckham, Frank Lampard, David Bentley, Alan Smith, and Micah Richard, who is three years younger than Ashley Young, which, as you have to say, incredible longevity. <laughs> For Ashley Young, and so I, I thought, wow, you know, he's older than. So I looked it up, and Ashley Young also scored on his professional debut for Watford, also playing for Watford. Wow, that day. Sean Dyche. <laughs> this is this is how long Ashley Young has been around. That his teammate on his debut was Sean Dyche, and and because the second half of this game was just totally unwatchable, uh, it kind of we could just kind of descended into a game of like what was going on when Ashley Young made his debut, and it was a, it was a very different world, uh, <laughs> which is a I guess a thing to think about. You know, t- t- Tony Blair was in charge. P- P- Paul Gascoigne had just been into China to play a bit of football. I think he'd stopped doing that uh, by then. Yeah, it was uh, a game. I think Gary McAllister was player manager of Coventry or something. I mean, it was it was a very different time when Ashley Young made his debut. We were all younger, more innocent in the in the Ashley Young sort of before yes. Young and after Young, the new the new stages of football. Um, Nottingham Forest have d- dismissed their head of recruitment. Feels like the horse may have bolted. I mean, sure, he's he's the hardest working man in showbiz. He's done a lot of recruiting. Wait, do you think it was the twenty third signing? They were like, "This is fine Not for sure twenty two, but actually, that Sergio Aurier is the straw that broke the camel's back." Yes, George Sirianos and head of scouting Andy Scott, following a review of their summer transfer business by their owner uh, Evangelos. Marinakis and new sporting director Filippo Giraldi. So I don't know if the new head of recruitment comes in and goes, What do you what do you want me to do, mate? <laughs> Sell all sign, the people they've off, presumably. Sign another twenty players in January. It's not it's not great if you're this Nottingham Forest enclave, and I hope they have a WhatsApp. I hope all the players who are brought into Nottingham have a WhatsApp or like go clubbing together or something, and they're they must like so the guy who bought all of us has been sacked <laughs> just a couple of months into the season. It's not it's not a vote of confidence, but, is it? But they're getting really they're getting incredible mixed messages with this new contract <laughs> for Steve Cooper, aren't they? Like they just must yeah. be really confused. All of them going, "Hey, I don't know who any of you are. I, you know, my name's Serge, and what the, what the fuck's <laughs> happening at this place? It's like when you're invited to a stag do and there's loads of people you don't know, and someone sets up." <laughs> The WhatsApp group, so it's yeah. just a string of random numbers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Uh, let's talk about the Women's World Cup qualifiers then. Wales miss out 
in the 121st minute against Switzerland. It was a brilliant finish, but heartbreaking. Um, Ellis James tweet, the final minute of extra time. I can't believe this. This is right up there with Russia 2003, Romania 93, Scotland 85, etc. The final fucking minute. So proud of them. They've changed Welsh sport forever. But the final minute of extra time. I mean, that's, it is heartbreaking, Baz, isn't it? Yeah, it's gossing. Um, and Ellis is, I, I can't chop what Ellis said there. I mean, you can celebrate the Irish, though, can't you? Um, Neil wants an hour on Ireland going to the World Cup, please. Well, it's it's a wonderful achievement. Um, five years ago, when John Delaney was still in charge of the FAI, the Irish women's football team threatened to go on strike before a game against, I think it was Slovakia, doesn't matter who it was against, they threatened to go on strike because they were very upset by the fact that they were being forced to changing toilets they were sharing tracksuits with the under 17 boys teams or wearing hand-me-downs from them they were they wanted match fees match fees max of up to 300 euros each i mean some would say that's incredibly greedy but uh, these are these are the basic things they wanted uh, maybe a little bonus of 100 or 150 euros if they won a game or 50 euros if they drew a game this this is what they were threatening to go on strike for, you know, back in your box, Killian. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and they were met with, you know, these demands were met very grudgingly and sniffily by the FAI. You know, it was, so, how dare you? How dare you make demands of us like this? And anyway, uh, so to go from being in that position to actually qualifying for the World Cup is is just remarkable and it's delighted. And I think, you know, women's football has grown massively in profile around this neck of the woods in, in the last few years, due no small part to England's success. And uh it's it's great for Ireland to be able to join them on the bandwagon and, and commiserations for Scotland and, and uh Wales who who can't. The World Cup is in Australia and New Zealand. Does that mean you're coming to live with me for a month, Barry? Well, I am thinking of going to Australia next year for uh, quite some time, but I, I I, know you take a very dim view of having house guests, so <laughs> I won't be staying with you. I won't be asking to stay with you, and I won't expect an invitation. That makes me sound really unkind, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yes. It, well, it doesn't yeah. make you sound oh, unkind. Yeah. It just makes you sound incredibly inhospitable. But I have heard you say before, like you had a guest, I think they stayed like for two nights or something and you No, two really... weeks is like two oh, nights two is weeks. enough. Two nights is maximum, isn't it? And then it's like, come on. And you know, and also if you're a house guest, it's like, please treat this like a hotel. I don't want you to talk to me all day every day. If I'm watching if I'm watching a box set, you don't need to talk through it. Just sit there and keep it you know, keep it down. My flash is develop something of a reputation as I, I'm the go-to guy for blokes or acquaintances who, I don't know, have dirtied their bib in their own homes in some way and need somewhere to, to lay low for a week or two. And I always, you know, my, my policy, two weeks maximum, and then you, you're out, either go groveling or find somewhere else to live. Do you do you get a lot of visitors from home, Max? Given that your policy is just two days, because I just think the flight time, <laughs> the, the, yeah, more time spent in the air than actually spent at Max's place. Like it's not good, is it? It's a very fair point. It's like Darwin Nunes's goals to headbutt ratio, which has improved, by the way. It's not one to two, which is better. Uh, whereas I think with you, the the house guest to flight time ratio is almost equal. I think that is a very good point. Well, I, I actually have a plan max for when if i do go to australia which is this is probably not for for broadcast because it's quite boring but i do remember that you have a neighbor who let you and the current mrs russian stay in her like shed or something yes yeah, she's got a little flat mary you can say mary's flat yeah so I, I'd, I'd rent that for a couple of weeks yeah that's perfect close enough but far <laughs> so, enough away yeah um we sh- should wish uh, our best wishes to enoch mwapu uh, the Brighton midfielder who's been forced to retire from football at just 24 because of a hereditary heart condition. Brighton said he'd be an extremely high risk of suffering a potential fatal cardiac event if he com- 
continued to play. Uh, he'd recently fallen in on a trip with the Zambian national team. So, yeah, that is very sad news for him. Julian Lopetegui is not going to take the Wolves job. Um, not so much that he didn't really want it. It was the timing and I think his dad isn't particularly well. Um, and finally, Tig says, Murder, she wrote, surely walks all over your veras and silent witnesses. R.I.P. Angela Lansbury. Fraser says, can we have a part three of the pod dedicated to Barry paying his respects to Angela Lansbury, please? I found out at the end of the game on these from these questions that came in. And I was really quite upset, Barry. Look, she's lived a wonderful life. She's 96. Uh, she did some amazing things. But I was really quite upset that Angela Lansbury is no longer with us. Yeah, um, I used to love Murder, she wrote. I mean, it's totally different ballpark to your Veras and your Bloodlands and your Shetlands and your Morses and whatnot. But, um, yeah, she she solved over 300 murders and wrote 30 novels during the course of 12 seasons of murders she wrote. That's a very impressive work rate. And big star of, of screen and, you know, big silver screen and stage as well. And I discovered uh, in the course of going down a Lansbury rabbit hole last night that... Um, she moved to Ireland, uh, I think in the early 80s, or early 70s or 80s, uh, and lived in Cork for a decade because both her son, or both her children, a boy and a girl, were had fallen in with a bad crowd and she wanted to, you know, get them away from the scene in LA because they were both um, dabbling with heroin. And her daughter had actually fallen under the spell of um, Charles Manson. So, uh, she, wow. yeah, I was not where I was expecting that to go. Yeah, and so uh, Charles Manson would wait for her at the school gates, and uh, she would have um, Mammy Lansbury's credit card, and they'd go, you know, just stealing stuff and or, or committing acts of fraud with Angela Lansbury's credit card. But yeah, she she took her kids. She just uprooted them and went to live in the comparatively uh, low octane rural life in Cork for a decade just to get her kids away from that scene, and I, I suspect a very wise decision it was too. I mean, in many ways, Cork is is it's like Cabot Cove without the murders, isn't it? So there'll be a lot of similarities for you know <laughs> the Lansburys. Uh, over there in the west coast of Ireland. Anyway, look, that'll do. I, it almost feels definitely like that'll do for today's podcast. <laughs> um, uh, thank you, Nikki. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Lars. Thank you, Max. Cheers, Baz. Cheers. Uh, back tomorrow. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Steele. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 